Welcome to the 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews that are just right, not too long and not too short. In this episode, Ruth gets artistic with Nova Luna. I have a perfectly good time with Cat Rescue. Ruel celebrates Ariel, and Mike takes a tour with San Francisco Cable Car. But first, Mason buys low and sells high in For Sale. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about For Sale. Sometimes games get reprinted endlessly in a hundred different languages, versions, and packaging over 20 or 25 years, but they're not really any good. Like, just objectively, is Skipbo good? Is it fun? I mean, I don't think so. It's certainly possible to have fun playing Skipbo with people you care about or whose company you enjoy, but that's I like this game, which is different than this game is good. Now, I know I'm on this topic a lot, but I think it's important to distinguish and separate those two ideas. There are lots of good games that I don't like, and lots more I've never played because I just know I won't like them, and plenty of bad games that I like a lot, usually either because they're weirdly compelling or they have some singular strange twist that makes them notable. Skipbo is neither of those, but it can be fun because most people know how to play it already, and it works well with a decent-sized group. But you know what? You deserve a better game that everyone knows, or should know, or can at least be taught in five minutes. You need a game from 1997 that you should have been playing at family cookouts and youth camp and inside recess. You need a game that's all emergence, razor-thin rules, some cards, and a few coins. You need a game that seems totally counterintuitive the first time you play it. You need a game with a mid-play knife twist that makes you say, Oh, I get it. Yeah, well, I've made a horrible mistake, and I'm going to lose, but I want to play it again immediately. The game you need is Stefan Dora's For Sale. For Sale is such a good 90s auction game that it could be a Kinesia. It plays 3-6, to six, but I think 4-5 to five is probably the sweet spot for serious play, and it seems like other people agree. It works at 3, and it's a blast of a hangout game at 6. For Sale is a weird little card game that could fit in your pocket if you needed it to. And if you're one of those board gamers who carries around a quiver all the time, you need to have a copy of For Sale inside it. Anyway, For Sale is odd in that it has two separate sections that aren't really rounds exactly, more like two separate mini-games, the first of which determines your available resources for the second. Both parts are auctions, so if you don't like emergent and cutthroat auction games, probably give this one a pass. The nice thing about For Sale is that even though it can be a little bit mean, and all good auction games, in my opinion, are at least a little bit mean. It's short enough that you don't really have much invested if you end up getting skunked, and you probably will the first few times you play. It's called For Sale, because in the first part of the game, you're spending money. Everyone starts with $18,000 in chips in order to buy properties. There are 30 houses to buy, and every round you're bidding on some of them. The same number of houses as there are players. It's open-raise bidding, so you keep going around the table until everyone has passed except for the winner. If you pass, you take back half your money rounded down and take the lowest valued house. Yes, I realize that some versions of this say rounded up, but there's a very clear BGG thread where Stefan Dora says it should be rounded down. Don't argue with me about it, just go with it. You can bid zero, and you often should, especially if you're cash poor or trying to conserve. You simply can't win every hand, and since everyone starts with the same amount of money, there's no going all in. You can't buy the pot in the first half. For sale is often about taking the middle road. It's impossible to afford all the good cards, but you don't really want to be left with too much money at the end of the first half. If you've got a ton of cash going into the second round, you might not lose since it does get added to your score at the end, but you're absolutely not going to win either. 
So what's the point of owning these properties? Well, in the second half of the game, you're going to be blind bidding for sales contracts with them. You lay out as many sales contracts, money cards, whatever, as players. Everyone picks a card they bought in round one and flips them over simultaneously. High property card takes the high contract, second takes the second, etc. So in effect, you are spending money in the first round to build up your hand for the second round. Now, if anyone wants to come at me with, so Stefan Dora invented deck building in 1997, they're going to get launched directly into the sun. I will not hear this nonsense. Please stop trying to make this a thing. Besides, if you listen to my old segment on German whist, you'll realize that I already made this dumb argument about 18th century two-phase whist variants. Now, which version should you buy? Well, you should probably just play it on Board Game Arena first. The implementation over there is excellent. There are a whole bunch of editions, and for sale goes in and out of print. I think it's between printings right now or something. But it's also pretty easy to find used, and there are a bunch of print-and-play re-themes available on Board Game Geek. All you'll need are some coins, uh, the property cards, just numbered 1 through 30, and 30 sales contracts, the values of which can easily be found online through a quick Google search. Now, there is some new reworked version of For Sale coming out in 2021, and it's, I don't know, car-themed or something. Please, if you want special cards that break the rules of a game, just play a CCG. Please leave our pure auction games alone. They don't need it. For Sale is perfect as it is. It doesn't need a revision. It doesn't need improvement. It doesn't need anything added to it. So, who should play For Sale? People who like auction games. If you don't like auction games, you are not going to like For Sale. I give For Sale 30 out of 30 pictures of extra wacky properties to buy and sell with my friends and family. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Wear a mask and wash your hands. Hello, Five by listeners. It's Ruth here, starting off the new year with a new moon. Published in 2019, Nova Luna is designed by Uwe Rosenberg and Korn van Mursel and has been beautifully illustrated by Lucas Siegman. With tile drafting reminiscent of Rosenberg's ever-popular patchwork, which Mason featured on episode 53, this abstract puzzle game has one to four players racing to be first to place all of their tokens onto tasks completed as they put together a personal tile display. Vaguely themed around the lunar cycle, Nova Luna is based around a circular selection display that features the various phases of the moon. Eleven tiles are randomly placed around this display, leaving a spot empty beside the titular new moon, at which is placed a cardboard moon standee. On a player's turn, they select one of the three tiles in front of this marker before moving it to the newly emptied spot. Each tile features a time cost printed on it, and the player must pay that cost by moving their own marker that number of spaces around the moon phases track. This is important as, similar to Patchwork or to Episode 2's Thebes, player order in the game is time-based, with the current player being the person furthest behind on the track. The active player then finishes their turn by placing their new tile into their tableau and seeing if they've completed any tasks. Tasks are printed on the tiles themselves, each tile having between zero and three of them. Each individual task shows a number of tile colors that need to be adjacent to the tile or connected to it in a chain of the same color. So for example, one task may require two red and one blue to be placed next to its tile, while another might ask for one each of the four tile colors. 
Tiles with higher time values provide easier-to-complete tasks, so there's a need to balance manipulating the turn order versus getting a number of discs out with every placement. You see, players can complete as many tasks per turn as they're able, which given that the minute someone places their last disc onto a task, they win the game, well, players will want to maximize that placement efficiency. Like Patchwork before it, Nova Luna limits the player's choice to the three tiles in front of the marker. What's different is how the tiles come out. The display only features some of the game's tiles, rather than having all tiles visible from the start. In addition, a player must choose to refill the display as the rounds progress, and they can only do so if there are just one or two tiles left, guaranteeing that by refilling, they're providing a number of new options to their opponents. Having a maximum of just 11 of the game's 68 tiles out at a time means it's entirely possible that some tiles won't ever be part of a particular game. So while the four colors are equally represented in the game's total contents, the colors may not be evenly represented in a particular play, making some tasks harder to complete. This really means that players can only plan so far ahead in Nova Luna, making things a bit more tactical in nature, which seems fitting given the fact that this game is a race to the finish and thus requires players to think on their feet. My copy of the game is the U.S. Stronghold Games Edition, and it's a lovely production, albeit one that comes in a somewhat oversized box for its contents. It's not so huge as to be aggravating, but I do find myself looking for ways to slim down the game for storage. The tiles are thick enough that they could be placed into a drawbag without fear of damage, and the moon standee is cleverly designed to be rather sturdy. It all comes together to look really nice on the table while remaining pretty easy to parse what you're looking at. And I do so love when a game manages to be both beautiful and still have functional graphic design. Now, while Nova Luna plays up to four, I've only played it with two or as a solo game. The solo game's goal is to place all of your discs while spending the lowest total time as designated by the values of the tiles you select. It takes place over two phases, with time spent in phase one being counted double. So you really have to think about when to switch phases once that option becomes available to you. It's an interesting puzzle, and I do enjoy the challenges it offers. But overall, I think I still prefer racing an opponent to simply maximizing my own efficiency. Playing in just 30 minutes, Nova Luna is a great game for fans of abstract designs with strong spatial aspects. If you're not someone who thrives on figuring out adjacencies and the ideal spot for a tile, then this game could get frustrating. I love it, and it's been one of the few games to actually hit my table recently, likely due to its packing a ton of fun, puzzly decisions into a small time commitment, not to mention offering the chance to really get into my opponent's head. So I have to recommend the game to fans of puzzly, dry, beautiful little games. If you get the chance to try out Nova Luna, let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. The first time I played Cat Rescue was in 2018. A friend had backed the game on Kickstarter and brought it to our regular game night. It was a great fit for our group because it's cooperative, plays up to five, it's simple enough for kids, and it's about cats. Designed by Tate Wu and published by Chronicle Books in 2018, Cat Rescue has a charming goal. Rescue cats from the street, bring them to the shelter, and place them in their forever homes. In terms of gameplay, that means playing cards with pictures of cats to a 4x4 grid. You can play cats from the deck, that's the street, or from your hand, that's your foster home. You place the cat next to another cat, then push that column or row over by one. 
If moving the row or column creates a run of cards with matching colors anywhere in the grid, you flip the middle cards of the run over, the ones that are bordered by two matching cards. Now look at the cards on the table. If a face-down card was pushed out of the 4x4 grid, that cat gets adopted. Even better, any face-down cards connected to it get adopted too. Those cats have found their forever home and the cards are removed from the game. But if a face-up card was pushed out of the grid, you have to take it into your hand, aka your foster home. You have a two-card hand limit. If a turn ever ends with three cards in a player's hand, the game ends immediately. Cat Rescue also ends if the 4x4 grid fills up entirely. That means the shelter has been overrun, and that would be sad. Try not to let that happen. You could also end the game by emptying the deck, meaning there are no more stray cats on the street. A much happier outcome. When the game has ended, no matter how it ended, you count up the number of adopted cats and score yourself accordingly. There's no losing Cat Rescue per se, but the lowest scoring level in the rulebook does say, please try harder. Cat Rescue may sound simple, and it is, but it makes for a fascinating little puzzle that's more of a challenge than you'd think. Well, it's more of a challenge than I thought when I first saw this adorable small box game. Between the charming theme and the cute cat illustrations by Kayami on each card, I have to confess that I expected the game to be a silly bit of fluff that was more at the level of the kids in our group. But the adults in the group really got into the logic puzzle of Cat Rescue. Every time it comes out, it gets played multiple times, pushing the cards back and forth, trying to manipulate the grid to flip as many cards as possible and get them out of the shelter without overrunning the shelter and without anyone going over their hand limit. It's a really fun puzzle. There are a few limitations on where you can place cats and what direction you can push them, which also helps keep the game from being too simplistic. I thought about Cat Rescue again last summer, when I felt a pressing need for a lightweight entertainment that would divert my attention and wouldn't demand high quantities of either time or brain power. Something cheerful that could distract me from current events and from my anxiety about current events. I'm sure you know what I mean, and if you don't, I envy you. Sadly, I can't play my friend's copy of Cat Rescue because I haven't seen her or our game group in almost a year now. But Cat Rescue is an inexpensive small box game, so I ordered it direct from Chronicle Books. It's also available at my friendly local game store and probably at yours. There are a few differences between my copy and my friend's Kickstarter edition. First, I have a few tokens that give you special abilities that can be used one time each. That might have been in the Kickstarter, but if it was, we didn't play with them. I think the biggest difference is my copy of Cat Rescue came with a playmat, a cloth with a 4x4 grid printed on it. This makes it much easier to see when a cat has been pushed out of the shelter. If it's still on the cloth, it's still in the shelter. My only criticism of the playmat, and it's a trivial one, is that it pilled a bit with use. The playmat is nice and thick, but a smoother cloth surface might be a bit more durable. Well, the other difference in Cat Rescue is my friend had backed the Kickstarter at a level that gave her a card with her own cat's name on it. But a perk like that isn't possible with a mass market edition. So I'll have to wait until we can play in person again using her set to see the GG card again. Board Game Geek says Cat Rescue is best with two players, and I find it makes an excellent lightweight solo game. It's just one puzzle, but that's not a negative to me. I spent my childhood playing solitaire games like Klondike or Accordion literally thousands of times, so I'm not worried about the replay value of a solo game like this. I'm thrilled to have a game that scratches that itch and lets me rescue adorable cartoon cats at the same time. 
It's quick, I can play at the end of the day to unwind after work, or while watching a movie or something. A nice little distraction to help me relax and forget about, well, everything. And that's Cat Rescue. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you have a rescued cat and you want to share photos with me. Then I really want to hear from you. It's summertime in Portugal, which means lively outdoor festivals are happening. Local residents celebrate in their neighborhood with an ahael, or festival, where they eat, drink, and enjoy music in the streets. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Ahael by Nuno Bizarro Santerio and Paulo Soledade with art by Nuno Saraiva and published in 2018 by Pandasaurus Games, who sent me a review copy. In Ahael, one to four players attempt to fill their streets with revelers and partygoers who are depicted in the shapes of Tetris-like pieces. These pieces are drawn randomly, and the active player will have three to choose from. On your turn, you perform three actions. You may perform an action more than once. Two different actions are available. You may optionally rotate the octagon that contains the festival tiles 90 degrees, or you may place a festival tile onto your street board. When taking a festival tile to place onto your street, you cannot rotate the piece. It must enter your street at the entrance bar and travel straight down until it lands on the bottom of your board or on top of another piece. If you connect a group of two or more similar colors, then you gain a visitor in the form of a meeple of that color. You can also gain a couple visitor if you have the largest group of that color. Play continues for three rounds, then visitors are counted up. Single meeples are worth one point each, while couple visitors are worth two points each. The most points wins. Ahael is an underrated game that I had no idea existed until Rado mentioned it. Full disclosure, this was part of a Twitch livestream I did with Rado about our top three games that didn't make the BGG Top 3000. We talked about why Ahael didn't fully capture the gaming community's attention when it was released. Baron Park and a few of Uwe Rosenberg's Polyomino games were published around the same time, and unfortunately Ahael got lost in the shuffle. Perhaps gamers were all polyominoed out. After hearing how much Rado enjoyed it though, I knew that this would be a hit in my household. My wife Michelle is a big fan of these types of spatial puzzle games. Patchwork and Baron Park are two of our favorites, and Ahael has joined them as a game in our regular rotation. Ahael is a solid tile-laying game with an added bit of area majority, which leads to an interesting dynamic. You and your opponents aren't directly competing against each other, since everyone has their own board, but you are trying to get the pieces you need from the octagon. Each piece comes in one of five colors with fun and lively art featuring partygoers in various states of revelry. Tetris players will immediately recognize the shapes from the square to the L, the straight bar to the Z. The game moves quickly thanks to the two simple actions you may take on your turn, either rotating the octagon of pieces or placing a piece. Not being able to rotate a piece once it begins its way down your board makes this unlike Tetris, but it provides the challenge of the game. Of course, you may rotate the octagon to get a piece into a prime position, but that's an action spent that might have been used to place another piece to secure a majority in that color. Thankfully, even when your plans are thwarted by an opponent taking the exact piece you need, you'll have a chance to do something else to make up for the lost scoring opportunity. For instance, your opponent may have swiped the blue piece you were hoping to use to gain the blue color majority. But there may be a piece that helps you complete an entire row, thus raising your entrance bar and gaining you a bonus visitor. 
These bonus visitors aren't tied to a specific color tile on your board, but they are worth one point each. As your street gets filled up with visitors, it may be necessary to remove the entrance bar at the top. You need to plan to avoid this though, since you'll lose a chance to add bonus visitors to your board from here on out. Sorry folks, no entrance, no bonus visitors. Obviously this is an abstract game at its heart, but I do appreciate the theme. Seeing all of the bright, vibrant colors and people eating, drinking, and dancing on the tiles just makes me smile whenever I play. You know what I love about AHL? It may not do anything new in terms of game mechanisms, but what it does, it does well. It takes well-known pieces such as tile lane and area majority and creates a satisfying whole, a streamlined puzzle of game that never outstays its welcome. Not every game needs to try to break new ground in game design. Even if it didn't stand out amongst the crowded field when it was released, Ahael is an excellent game and continues to provide fun experiences at the tabletop. Included in the game is a solo mode that's easily implemented. There's no AI player to keep track of, just a few changes to set up and gameplay. You're trying to score as high as possible before being ranked. It's a good challenge that doesn't take too long to play. These days, Ahael gets to the table more often than more popular and well-reviewed games. And as I'm sure we can all agree upon, a game being played on the table is better than a game sitting on the shelf. Thanks to Pandasaurus Games for the review copy of Ahael. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. In ethics, the Charlie problem is a well-known test of logic posing a life-and-death question of morals. In board gaming, we have our own Charlie problem, which is, in a hobby where we have Suro, Metro, and Indigo, why would anyone want San Francisco Cable Car? This is a question I am at least nominally more qualified to answer. Cable Car is a relatively peaceful tile lane game where we are competing companies laying routes to connect our cars to stations. The routes are laid out on tiles, and each round you take a tile and place it on the board. You score a point for each tile your track goes through, double if you connect to the power station in the middle of the board. Ostensibly this sounds simple, and it is, except that as a company you have multiple cars that you are trying to connect via as long a route as possible. This gives you flexibility with tile placement in that you don't necessarily need to draw that perfect tile next round as you can use it on another line. But it also limits you as you must consider how your current tile placement affects multiple lines. Are you cutting off one of your trolleys to make the current line more valuable? Sometimes that's inevitable, but it better be worth it. Then there's the hate placement. Similar to hate drafting, in Cable Car there are no rules that you can only play under your own lines. You are more than welcome to accidentally, or intentionally, end your opponent's lines by connecting them to a terminal faster than they wanted. This leads to some serious gnashing of teeth in my home, but I remind the kids that this is a valid placement and part of the game. The only tile placement rules really are that they must all be facing the same direction and be placed adjacent to an existing tile or next to the edge of the board, and you cannot send a car into the station with just one tile. But that last one is a tricky one to constantly check, and I know we, or at least I, have unintentionally broken it several times. If all this sounds almost exactly like Metro as covered by Mason in episode 34, you are correct. Cable Car is a later retheme of this classic Dirk Hen design. The main difference being that Metro is a darker high contrast art style that makes both the paths and the direction indicator easier to see. It's fine. It's not my favorite. Not to be fickle, but the art just kills it for me. Cable Car shows the actual city that you are building, and the pieces fit together in a clever way where the buildings all match up. 
The only issues are that, yes, the art by Michael Menzel is more muted, and direction is indicated by which direction the buildings face, which is difficult to see. But put together, the map is much more lovely, and I personally have no problem seeing the tiles. The other difference in the two is that San Francisco Cable Car has an advanced game, where all eight companies are in use, and everyone is randomly given stock in multiple companies, and tries to maneuver those companies into the lead. You can, of course, trade stocks if you see a better one on the market, but it's sometimes difficult to work out who is really in the lead, as the scoring for each company occurs as cars finish their routes. So a company may look far in the lead, but that could be because they're almost tapped out, while those other companies are still going. But maybe no viable paths are left for those other companies, and they're cut off. That's some of the more deep thinking that has to occur in this variant. Still, I may almost like the classic method better, as when no one is really responsible for an individual company, no one is really paying that much attention to what lines are finished on their turn, intentional or not. As for my likes and dislikes, I do like Cable Car for a nice peaceful tile layer, even more than Suro, as you have more than one token you're trying to advance. I also like that there's no player elimination. Even if you finish all your cars, you still keep playing until all the cars are completed, and someone probably still has one or two going until the full city is made. I also love looking at the city that you make in Cable Car. I think it plays well at 2-4 players, but I never got to play it at 5 or 6. The stock variant works well if you want to play 2 players, but be less head-to-head. -head. For dislikes, I mean, I guess I see people's issues with the art. I suppose if that's a big deal to you, then get Metro instead. I do dislike the availability of Cable Car. It seems to come and go, like most Queen games, with people asking outrageous amounts for it, and then suddenly it's going on him. It seems to come and go like most Queen games, with people asking outrageous amounts for it, and then it's suddenly going on Amazon for pennies. Right now, it seems to be in its regular about-to-go-out-of-print phase. There are some copies available at online game stores, but don't worry, it'll be back soon, I'm sure. Like the classic trolley problem, the question in board gaming has an underlying flaw, which is it's an unrealistic question. A false dichotomy, even. San Francisco Cable Car is not better or worse than Suro, Metro, or Indigo. It's just different, as are the rest from each other by varying degrees, and one certainly doesn't kill the others. If you want player elimination or to be a dragon, then play Suro. If you need high contrast, play Metro. If you want to collect gems by sliding them along past your goals, then check out Mason's review of Indigo in episode 61. But if you want to build a lovely city while moving cars along to terminals and the stock option sounded interesting, then check out Cable Car. Until next time, if you have any further questions or comments about San Francisco Cable Car, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. You've been listening to The Five By, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on The Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fivebygames. Thanks for listening. Thank you.